You probably don't need me to tell you that we live in a complex world. That everywhere you turn, life is complicated. And that there are a multitude of decisions that face you every place you look. The harder you try to understand things, the more complicated they become. And you, it doesn't matter where you look. You can look at politics or science. You can look at education. You can look at social media. And everywhere you look, it becomes more complicated and less clear. And pretty soon it's just like, what do I do with all of this? And I would love to tell you that Yes, being a Christian is nothing like that. That uh, you don't have to worry about anything that might be complicated or complex here. But the reality is that I feel a fair amount of pressure to, uh, well, keep things complicated, shall I say. I mean, I, I want to be clear about the difference between justification and sanctification. I want you to know which theories of the atonement are acceptable. I want you to know whether you're an egalitarian or a complementarian. You must know as well the truth about the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Shroud of Turin. If that's not enough, you can, of course, begin at the beginning. Do you believe a literal seven, 24-hour day creation or a gap theory or maybe some other alternative? Are you superlapsarian, infralapsarian, or sublapsarian? Of course, these things have to do with your ordo salutis. You didn't even know you had an ordo salutis, did you? Or you could maybe go to the end, and you'd have to decide, are you pre-trib, post-trib, or mid-trib? Amillennial, post-millennial, or premillennial? Are you a cessationist or a continuist? Even as I look at you, this is uh, with your masks on even. I mean, some of you are like really digging this. This is like, yes, throw more big words at me. And others of you are saying like, your eyes are glazed over already. Like, please get this over with. But the reality is you don't even have to use big words. But really, like what from the Old Testament applies to us? Do we need to keep the Sabbath? What about a tithe? Is there a proper way to pray? Even questions about becoming a Christian. Do I need to ask Jesus into my heart? Do I need to trust Christ as my Savior and my Lord? Or do I simply repent and believe? In other words, did I do it right? There are all kinds of questions and all kinds of ways in which we can get the, the, the water to be good and muddy around our Christianity. There's a lot to keep track of and it can really be too much sometimes. Well, the good news is the big words are over. The good news is that Jesus simplifies this for us. And in the three verses that we're going to look at this morning, he reduces this life in the kingdom to its essential elements. And so let's 
Let's read from Matthew chapter 7, verses 12 through 14. It says this, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. And so I simply this morning want to encourage you to keep the kingdom life simple by doing the right thing and entering the narrow gate. Don't make it more complicated than it needs to be. It really can boil down to doing the right thing or keeping the golden rule, you might say, in entering the narrow gate. So, here's how Jesus states what we have come to know as the golden rule. He says in verse 12, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Whatever you want somebody to do for you, you do it for them. It's as simple as that. Now, I say that it's simple, but I, you, I don't want you to think that it's easy, and I don't want you to think that, it's, that I'm being dismissive of important things by saying that it's simple. Because there are, there are at least two different ways in which you might approach keeping God's Word, approach doing God's will. One is to reduce it, and the other is to add to it. You can reduce it or you can add to it. The addition of rules is one of the ways that you can make sure that you keep the law. Adding rules, adding guidelines, adding structure is one of the ways that you can ensure that you know what to do in any given situation. This is, if you think about it, how the Old Testament worked. Because there were, <clears throat> I could ask you how many, but you all know, there are only ten things to do, right? The Ten Commandments. It's very easy to simplify. There were ten. You have finger, one finger for each one. But you also know that your Old Testament is much longer than that. Why is the Old Testament so much longer than that? Well, because the way that they structured life was to figure out what, in fact, uh, you would do in a given situation to keep those. In other words, they, would, they added case law, you might say, to... Uh, the, the simplest of laws. For instance, your neighbor's ox falls into a ditch. It happens to you all the time, I'm sure. Your neighbor's ox falls into a ditch. What are you going to do? 
What if it's on the Sabbath? Then what are you going to do? Yeah, you really would help to have some guidelines on that. And there are guidelines on that. And there are several others. Right? That's kind of what the whole uh, book of uh, Exodus and Leviticus are about. Is how do I build out these laws? And they add to them what you might call case law. And that's one thing. Right? You, you can add in order to help people keep God's Word. However, the Pharisees did even more than that. They took not only the basic ten, they took the others, and then they added more so that you would make sure not to violate any of God's true laws. So it wasn't just you should keep the Sabbath, and it wasn't just what about the specific cases of, uh, you know, a Uh, an ox falling in a ditch. What would you do? How much could you work? How far could you walk? And they made rule after rule after rule after rule after rule in order to keep the central rule, right? That's one way that you can go about uh, doing God's will, pleasing God. And I have to admit that that was really uh, pretty characteristic of the church, I'm going to say the big church, uh, when I was growing up. There were all sorts of laws or rules, some of them written, some of them unwritten, that you could you know, do these kinds of things, say, on a Friday night, but you couldn't do these. I mean, I... Um, <laughs> Yeah, you, some of you, especially those who are older, know what those are and how you're not supposed to do them and how uh, you'll get a talking to, right, if you do. I mean, we had that, we got talking tos even when we would come to church because, I mean, we had transgressed not one of the ten, not even one of the other case law things, but one of those other laws that somehow helps us to get back here. And that is a legitimate way. And the other thing I just want to stop and say, I mean, I, I say it a little bit tongue-in-cheek that there are all of these rules, some written and some unwritten, but the reality is many of them, most, are well-intentioned. That's the thing that I think my generation lost from the previous generation. The previous generation had these rules for good reasons, and my generation came along and said, oh, no, thank you. But the reality is that they wanted to please God, and they wanted to do the right thing, and they were well-intentioned by adding these things that would keep us from getting in the ditch ourselves. And that is one way to do it. But there is another way. And the other way is to reduce the number of laws. To simplify instead of complexify what it means to follow God. And the interesting thing is that Jesus was a master 
at simplification. He was a master at zeroing in on the heart of the matter. Over and over, Jesus is confronted with these extra rules and these guidelines and these fences that keep people from getting in trouble. And and over and over, Jesus takes issue with them because He is so precise about getting at the heart of the matter. And He does that here, doesn't He? That's what this is. If you want somebody to do something for you, do it for them. He says this a number of ways in other places. To get at the heart of the matter, Jesus Jesus summarized it in in Matthew 22. He says, but when the Pharisees, and the Pharisees were those who added layer upon layer upon layer of rules, they had heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, who were their rivals, They gathered together to have a little Pharisee meeting. And one of them, who happened to be an expert in the law, asked Jesus a question in order to test him. And he said, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Okay, he knew them all. I mean, there was a whole host of them. And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. In other words, all of that host of laws, not just the ten, but all the ones around it and all the ones around that, all come back to two. Love God, love other people. It's really that simple. Jesus boiled it all away and he was left with the heart of what it means to be a person who lives in the kingdom. Now, one of the things that I have learned is that those who build those extra protective rules, even with good intentions, don't like it when you ignore them. And they didn't like it when Jesus did either. And a little bit earlier in chapter 5, they had accused Jesus of coming and trying to get rid of everything, and you're ruining everything. And Jesus said, do not think, in chapter 5, verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Just because some of these fences are not working for me, don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus is coming for the heart of them. He's coming for the center of them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches others will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so I think what Jesus is doing here is he is telling us that if you can get to the heart of it, if you can get to the center of what the law and the prophets was all about, then 
you're not getting rid of all of these other things. You're actually accomplishing it. You're not, you're not abolishing or dismissing or lowering the bar somehow. Rather, to get at the heart of it is to raise the bar so that your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. In fact, Jesus simply says, if you want somebody to do something for you, do it for them. That is the simplicity of it. This golden rule gets at the heart of what it means to love other people. And when you do that, all of the law and the prophets, really all of the Old Testament, unfolds before you and it all fits together and works. This golden rule, as we call it, is built out several different times throughout the New Testament. Each one of them sort of shades a different um, sort of context and and, uh, applies itself in different ways. First one in Romans 13 says, For the, the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus, or so the Apostle Paul, when talking about the, the Ten Commandments, does say, you know, you remember the Ten. You can remember at least that many of them, right? Even those have a center. And the center there is love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Love is the law and the prophets. Essentially, that's exactly what Jesus is saying. Or in Galatians, it says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. The interesting thing, you're called to freedom. That's not exactly all of these fences, right? All of these extra rules. You were called to freedom. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh or to do whatever you want. But rather, use your, flat, use your freedom as an opportunity through love to serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. As you want somebody else to do for you, do also for them. It it really is that simple. Then again, in the book of James, James was the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, uh, half-brother of Jesus. And he, he, again, summarized and got rid of all of the extraneous stuff and said, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And when you do that, you're doing well. It's really that simple. You can simplify it to the heart of the matter. And so, love your neighbor as yourself. If you would have somebody do unto you, do also unto them. The Christians, Christians have been doing this throughout history. In fact, the 
um, one of the earliest, if not the earliest, document that we have that is outside of the Scriptures opens. It's called the Didache. It opens with Jesus' golden rule in a negative form, sort of flipped around, and it says, first, these are opening lines, first, love the God who made you, second, your neighbor as yourself, and whatever you don't want to happen to you, don't do it to another. There you go. If you do want it, do it to them. If you don't want it, don't do it to them. It's that simple. And in reality, it does, doesn't it? It simplifies everything. It simplifies marriage. Whatever you wish your spouse would do for you, do it for them. It simplifies parenting. Teach your children to do for their siblings what they wish their siblings would do for them. It's not that complicated. And it's eminently practical. You can't get more practical than this, can you? If you want the pitcher of water full when you go to fill your glass, fill it when you're finished. If you want the car to have gas in it when you hop in and need to go somewhere, fill it when you drive. Do you wish that your spouse would take you on a date? Well, then go ahead and make a plan. So you can do for someone else what you wish someone else would do for you. That's the essence of love. Now, granted, they might not get back to you, they might not, it might not return to you in the way that you hope. That doesn't negate what Jesus is saying. He's simply saying, if you want, wish that somebody would do it for you, do it for them. And so it, it's probably worth stopping to say, how does this fit into life in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus is giving us a sermon which defines and builds out how he envisions life in his kingdom. So how does the golden rule fit in there? I think the first thing that I would say in answer to that is that this verse 12 follows verse 11. Just going to say. Okay, it, it follows prayer. If you want people to pray for you, pray for them. You may never know if they pray for you, and that's okay. But pray for them. But the entire sermon, this entire Sermon on the Mount, reflects Jesus' intent to bring a kingdom in that people would live in perfect relationship with God and where they would become fully human and live in relationship with one another. His kingdom is this first taste of the new heaven and the new earth. <clears throat> I heard uh, somebody suggest that Christians are nothing but little pink spoons. The little pink spoons, you go to the ice cream store, and you're not really sure which flavor you want to get that day, and they pull out a little pink spoon, and they give you a taste, and you say, I'd really like that. 
In some respect, Christians are those little pink spoons for the new heaven and new earth. This kingdom of God, when it's in full bloom, it has its foretaste as Christians live under Christ's rule now. And all through this sermon, really, I've been thinking and saying to you, wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be great? See, wouldn't it be great if the people that you meet and talk to were meek? Wouldn't it be great if they were meek on social media? What if the people I hung around with hungered and thirsted for righteousness? How would that rub off on me? Wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be great if people didn't posture so that other people would think that they were really something, but rather they were genuine to the core? Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't it be great if people didn't harbor anger and lash out? Yeah, it would be great. In fact, I find myself wishing people would do those things for me. I don't want them to be angry with me. And so what does Jesus say here as he boils it away? Well, don't be angry with them either. I wish people would have a good impact on me and encourage me along the way. Well, guess what? Maybe I shouldn't be angry and maybe I should encourage people along the way too because that's what I wish people would do for me. And so as I look at verse 12 of chapter 7 here, I say, wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be great if all of us just were able to simplify our interactions with one another and say, you know what, I wish somebody would do that for me, so I'm going to do it for you. And if we do that, all of the demands, the law and the prophets, would be fulfilled because we would love one another. Well, that's not the only way that Jesus simplifies things here. He simplifies what it means to be in the kingdom uh, by simply saying, you have a choice. There are two gates. And enter by the narrow gate. Enter by the narrow gate, verse 13, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. It doesn't get much more simple than that. There are no magic words for joining with Jesus. There's not some sinner's prayer that you have to recite. Close with Jesus is simply a matter of making sure you're through the gate. Enter by the narrow gate. This kind of language has been all through the Old Testament. In fact, this fulfills the law and the prophets as well. There were two ways in Deuteronomy. Uh, in Deuteronomy 28, there is the way of blessing and the way of cursing. They both stand before you. Which will you take? Psalm chapter 1, one of my favorite passages of Scripture, introduces us to the hymn book of uh, the people of God. 
And it does it by saying there are two ways. There's the way of blessing and the way of cursing. The way of the righteous, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And so it opens up the book of Psalms and says, in here you'll find how to stay on the right path. You'll find which way works. And so here in Jesus' words, there are two roads, there are two gates, there are two destinations, and there are two crowds. There are two roads, one easy, one hard. There are two gates, one wide and one narrow. There are two destinations, one is destruction and one is life. And there are two crowds. Many are on the easy road and few are on the hard road. In fact, you could probably say that the hardness of the road is inversely proportional to the glory of the destination. If you are on the easy road, you better watch out. See, this is so contrary, isn't it, to what so many people think the Christian life is supposed to be like. It's supposed to get easier. It's supposed to get better, not harder, if I follow Jesus. That's what Job's friends tried to tell him. Here Job was a, was a man who walked with God and his life was really hard. And his friends all said, Job, you got it wrong here. Clearly you got it wrong because look how hard your life is. And they counseled him against the simple direction of Jesus, which says the hard road is the good road. The hard road is a road that leads to life. And so if you're on the hard road, take heart. That's a good sign. If it's not hard for you, you should probably have a little warning here today. I mean, this is so woven into the way that God's people live in God's kingdom that Paul and Barnabas, as they were just planting churches, it says they circled back And they strengthened the souls of the disciples. This is Acts 14. Encouraging them to continue in the faith. Saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. In other words, this path that leads to life, to the kingdom of God, is a hard path. And there's going to be tribulations. And you need to know that. So take courage when things are hard. And so I have to ask, like, why here? Why now? Why would Jesus say something at this point in the sermon about the two roads? Well, I think he's about, to, he's about to talk to us about false teachers and false prophets saying that they're suggesting to you another gate. They're suggesting to you a different road. So pay attention. Look out. And we'll see that next week.
But you need to also notice that his lead command here, which there really only is one, and that is enter. Enter by the narrow gate. Don't stand outside. Apparently, it's possible to stand at the threshold of kingdom life and think that you're in just because you're near the gate. Apparently, it's possible for you to be in the hallway looking at the door, looking at the gate, thinking that you're somehow on the other side of it when you're not. It's possible to be on the wide road and convince yourself that you're through the gate on the hard road. And I think that's why Jesus warns us of this. In just a few verses, in verse 21, He says, Not everyone, not everyone who says to Me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of My Father who's in heaven. Not everyone who thinks they're in is really in. And so, you must be warned. You have to take note and say, am I on the right road? That's what Jesus, I mean, Jesus doesn't give any more than that. I mean, this, this is why we talk about walking with Jesus. We talk about walking with Jesus because He talks about it as a road. He says, it's a road, let's go for a walk. Let's walk all the way to life. And so are you walking with Jesus on the narrow road? This is such a significant idea that in Acts chapter 9, verse 2, the Christians are, begin being known as those who are of the way. They, they talk to, they, they're talked about among the people in the town as those who are on the way. And so part of being His kingdom people means we're on the way together. And it comes from these verses when the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. I just want to remind you that even this simplicity, uh, again, reminds us of the importance of the gospel. The simplicity I'm trying to get to here, just about saying, get through the gate, and then if you want somebody to do something for you, do it for them. That level of simplicity reminds us of the gospel because simply there is a narrow gate because Jesus did for us what we wished somebody would do. See, Jesus is not only the perfect example of the golden rule. Yes, He gave Himself so that we might have what we couldn't get any other way. What we had only hoped for, He gave us by laying down His life. But really, it is because He did that in the way that He did it on the cross 
that he can now be that narrow gate through which you enter into life. In fact, this is why Jesus said, I think, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is that gate. You get into life by closing with Jesus, by drawing near to Him. And there, there aren't magic words by which you do that, but you simply, you simply say, let me in. Jesus, you have done everything for me that needs to be done, and I can't do anything. I'm on this broad road, and I know where it goes. Can you let me in the narrow road, the narrow gate? And it's because He loved you and did for you what you could only wish for that He can say, yes, you may enter in. The way you get to the Father is through me. And so I don't want you to worship Jesus this morning without considering whether or not you've entered the gate and are on the hard road. But I also want you to know that if you turn and you say, I want to go through, you will be welcome on the other side. And that you can be because of all that Jesus has done when He died on the cross so that you might enter in. And yes, there's much to say about things Christian, about theology and doctrine and practice and all of the things that we might complicate uh, Christianity with. But when it becomes too complex or complicated, I simply want to say, trust Jesus. Drop back to this. Enter through the narrow gate. Walk the hard road. Look around you. And if there's something you wish someone would do for you, do it for them. It's really that simple. And wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be great if everybody did that? I mean, how wonderful would this kingdom collection of people be if we all were on the hard, narrow path together looking out for one another and what we wish somebody do for us, we do for them. May God help us. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, I do ask for your help. Uh, I am far too lazy, far too eager to think of my own thing and not the things of other people or the things of the kingdom. So would you help me to raise my eyes and look for what other people need? And Father, would you just confirm for us too that our full trust and hope is in Jesus and that on this hard road we have someone to walk with us and to welcome us home when we get there. So we love you and we thank you for this simple reminder in the name of Jesus. Amen.